Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like me who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. A massive thanks to all of you listening who have already joined the Producers Club, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, Gavin Wall, Peter Dixon, and of course, the Orma Baths team. Today's episode wouldn't exist without you. To find out more about how you can support independent ad-free media, get invitations to live podcasts, and submit questions to our guests, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much, and really hope you enjoy today's show. All right, guys, what's the crack? Today's podcast guest describes himself as a guy from Belfast, an ultramarathoner, and possibly even the worst pupil in the history of Inst. It's a school in Belfast. It's an all-boys school, for those of you who don't know. Now, you may know Mark Dowds as an early investor in Uber, the chief operating officer of Trove, a company that is disrupting the insurance industry, and also one of the people behind turning normal baths from an art gallery into the entrepreneurial hub that it is today. Had an absolutely incredible conversation with Mark today about honestly a whole bunch of things that I didn't even expect to cover. I kind of ended up having to tear up my notes and the things I planned for this interview because the conversation took a really interesting direction. We ended up talking about the hero's journey, about finding yourself and kind of about slaying the dragons that we face in our own lives. Mark has experienced an incredible amount of success in his life along with the failures and the challenges and the setbacks that kind of come with all of that. And he shared really generously about some of those key learning points and I think that you're going to get an awful lot from today's episode. So that's it. Without further ado, come on, bring on the intro and bring on the guest. Here we go. Hi, I'm Mark Dowds, and you're listening to The Best of Belfast. All right, guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bass Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from our Producers Club, where listeners just like you pledge as little as £1 a month in exchange for exclusive perks, invitations to live podcasts, some Northern Irish swag, and much, much more. Massive, massive thank you to all of you who are part of that, especially our Titanic producers, Town Square Cafe, Gavin Wall, Ali Hart, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, and of course, the Omobass team. We could not do this show without our producers, and thanks to your support, we can keep it running and allowed to stay ad-free. So, really appreciate you. To find out more about the great work these guys do, and support us on our journey to 100 interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Okay, that's it for me. Time to jump straight into today's conversation with this week's local legend. So I was actually about you there. I don't know if you know this, but the listeners certainly do. Sometimes on a lunch break on a sunny day, I will check my delivery app to see if there's any spaces. And I'll hop on and go and do a quick wee one hour kind of shift just to clear uh-huh. the head. So I was on the bike and your wife actually said to me whenever she found out we were doing this interview, she said, you know where a really good place to start would be? Just ask Mark about cycling and some sort of long cycling race. And so I'm just going to leave that there and allow you to go with it. Right. Okay. Should we, seriously? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, cy- cycling's probably, the, I've, just, I've, been, I've been a bike fanatic from a child. So that's the one thing that runs through me that I've always been in. I was into BMX, was into, you know, mountain biking, motocross. Like oh, wow. We're bike in the fullest sense of the word. Bike in the fullest sense, oh, wow. yeah. Road bikes, everything. Um, but then uh, a little bit later in life, I, I, I picked up that you could do these crazy endurance mountain <laughs> bike races. And so... Um, there's one called the Race Across the Sky. It's in Leadville. It's in the highest altitude in, in the U- United States, 100 miles um, with crazy amounts of climbing. So it's like Lance Armstrong, lots of <laughs> others have all done this race. Yeah. Um, and so did that many years ago now, actually. Um, but it was, yeah, so it was it was phenomenal, but the air was so thin. Um, and then wanted to push it a little bit harder. And so then I started competing and doing 24-hour 
uh, mountain bike races. <laughs> so what they are is they basically put you on like about a 12, 13 mile loop and you and you bang one of these out every, you know, and, uh, you know, one every hour or you try to go wow. for it basically. And um and you you're self sustained, so you gotta feed yourself, clean your bikes. You know, you need more than one bike on it because you ride you ride through the night. Yeah. And you just get over and over. So you gotta manage your battery lights and stuff. So I'm such a geek about <laughs> all this stuff. So I've got more bike gear than enough. But I uh yeah, won my yeah, won my age class in in the state of Oregon. Uh Took second in California, did a bunch of... <laughs> I, did, I didn't realize it was to that extent. I just thought you liked cycling. Yeah, got into the World Championships. What? Did that three, four, four years ago, three or four years ago, um, which was demoralizing, actually. It was a much such a different degree. Um, but, yeah, I've done some really crazy stuff on the bike. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I've, I absolutely love mountain biking. When, when I was living in California, I was stupid fit. It's much harder here, you know, with the weather and the seasons and stuff like sure. that. But uh, but yeah, I love bikes. And the other thing that the first time I met you, I think it was the first time, it was maybe the second time that I've always I haven't been able to shake. So Jackie and I, and my wife, we were in Newton Ards over the weekend, and I was thinking again, flip's sake, is it really true that he walks from roughly around here to Ormo Bass sometimes? Yes, when normally when I'm home, that's what I do. So yeah, it's a ten, ten miles each way. So why do you do that? Because obviously, what I find interesting about both the cycling and the walking is obviously, some would say you're a time-starved individual because of all the various things that you're involved in. But yet, you seem to intentionally carve out time to either cycle or walk. That takes up pretty extensive amount of time. So why is that important to you? Outside of oh, it's good to stay fit, blah blah blah. Being alone. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things for me. Is I find it very meditative. It's a, I mean, I do every so often go out. I used to go out with the bike club and whatever on a Sunday. Um, enjoy it and I enjoy the banter, but I actually prefer biking alone. Mm. Um, uh, I do a bit on the road, but I really prefer the, the getting on the dirt. But I, I find, you know, folks ask me a lot of, over the years, like, what, why, why motorbikes, why bikes? I said, I get to put a helmet on. <laughs> I don't have to talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, so I find that I could get into the silly long, long stuff that I do on it. You get into almost like a, I disappear and I get into the, almost like a trance and sort of like, you know, I'm just, and it, so it seems to work out all my stresses mm. um, on the on the intense side of things. On the walking side, you know, it's they it would be just leave the house at six in the morning. I'll spend the first hour um, walking, thinking through my day, um, you know, I use it as my sort of my, my really my, my prayer time. So I'll do that as sort of thinking through and then I'll listen to a podcast for an hour and then typically I'll meet up with somebody and walk the last piece in or something. So how long is it? Uh, two hours, 40 minutes. Wow. Either between two 2.38 and 2.42. <laughs> sort of tends so to work you've out. got it down to the T, do you? Yeah, yeah. I know where to meet people at certain instance, yeah, but it's... Uh, and then the way, on the way back, walking back, it's just... Uh, I do come because I'm, um, you know, I work with a lot of folks in the states. I just do conference calls on the on the way back. So I just so by the time I'm back, I've got my work done. I'm got twenty miles in. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm glad I started there. It's it's insightful, and we'll probably come back to some of that stuff later on because I find that stuff just fascinating. So the first question we always start off with the official question anyway is really just an opportunity for us to get to know you a bit better. A lot of the listeners to kind of contextualize you and place you, and that is simply you walk into an elevator. Big Liam Neeson's there. How do you introduce yourself on that wee ride up? Yeah, and that one will be the ele- the elevator pitch in my life would be I I'm I'm Mark Dodds and from Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the, uh, the 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 elevator pitch and work and business is very different. Yeah, but, yeah. But if somebody asks me really, you know, what's important to me, it would be my family and uh, and basically my really the the love for for people and for our our community. So I, I love to see people flourish and fly. Mm. I'll do anything to help and support that. Yeah, that's awesome. No, definitely. And Belfast seems to be a big part of who you are and your identity. And obviously, particularly now in this season where, you know, we're sitting in normal baths here, we're looking out this window at all the kind of startups here, this building and the, the, the role that that's played in your story. When did you, I don't want to say when did you fall in love with Belfast, but when did you really start to have a real affinity to where you live? Was it always there or did it come at a different point in life? 
Yeah, I think it really, I mean, I, I always did love Belfast. I always loved home here. Um, but there's something about leaving that turns it into a little, something a little bit more magical. Like when you're away and you re- you recognize, I mean, I've got great friends all over the world. You know, we've lived in Vancouver, lived in Toronto, lived in San Francisco. And, you know, and, and I've got amazing, amazing mates in, in all of them. But there's something about home where the banter, the... The humor, uh, the sort of—I mean, even all my school friends. I mean, there's no, there's nobody like your school friends yeah. that, to, to bring you down a notch. You know? Yeah, they know. They really know where you came from, don't they? That's exactly <laughs> right. So there's a so there's a little bit of that magic that's missed, and that, that's uh, I don't know. It's sort of like a there's a there's a passion and a messiness that's about it. That's sort of that's very attractive. So I think uh, that I've, I certainly romanticized about. So don't get me wrong. Like when I was in California, I like absolutely loved it. I had a brilliant time there. But I've always enjoyed coming home. I've always enjoyed going for a couple of beers with my friends and catching up. And, uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very mystical, magical place. Yeah. And in those seasons where you lived overseas and you did have that opportunity to come home, like, where would you go? Like, you say you like to go out for a couple of pints with your mates. Like, where would that place be that you just couldn't wait? You get the pint, you're like, ah, here we are, I'm home. Typically the Duke of York. Yeah. Yeah, so it would be, it'd be um, yeah, I'd come home here. And that, that would normally be the one. So uh, as the Duke of York was always always a hot spot. Um, yeah. Or I'll be a tourist. Sometimes I'll be flying back and I'll actually be bringing someone with me and I'll always do, you know, the typical tourist thing and bring them for a pint at the crown. Oh, why? Has yeah. to be done. Like, yeah, <laughs> has so, to be done. Um, but yeah, it's uh, but yeah, typically, typically that'll be it. Um, and I'm, I'm a, you know, I tour people around Northern Ireland all the time, so I've got I have people visit and stuff, and I just take them all around the all the usual spots. Yeah, uh, the Giants. I've done the Giants Causeway more times than most. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. I know the feeling. And when did you first leave, and why did you leave? Um, so the when's an easier one to answer. That was in 1998. Uh, why is a very nuanced answer. <laughs> um, short answer to that one would be my wife wanted to, to move to Canada. <laughs> Go on, Claire. <laughs> yeah. So I resisted her probably for a year. Um, but also... Um, there was a lot of stuff that I was doing and I was getting a lot of resistance in Belfast uh, at that time. So I don't think I was ready for Belfast and it wasn't ready for me. So and what were some of those resistance points? I did a lot of um, sort of cross-community events, um, youth work and so on. So uh, ran, you know, a couple of festivals and so on. And it really was about bringing the community together around peace, reconciliation, um, celebration of life and faith for the whole community and the local uh, church scene basically decided to not like me so they agreed that I wasn't from God or neither were my initiatives <laughs> in their words and sort of began to sort of push me out so I was in the newspapers quite a lot it was controversial um, and so at that particular time it just seemed that I was being uh, you know you know being moved on Okay, I'm going to take this down a really weird angle, okay? Because this just came in my head and I just like to explore these things. So what's interesting is when you came home, as far as I understand, you know, in, you know, I don't know, was it five years ago or when was it? Three. Three years ago. In my impression anyway, from someone who's on the outside of your life, is that you were kind of welcomed back with fanfare and celebration and people were really happy to have you home, right? Yep. Is that fair to say? Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, okay. So in some ways, I've just finished, not just finished, I read the book like nearly every month. It's called The Alchemist. It's by uh, Paulo Coelho. But he mentions in it the story of Joseph from the Bible mm. and how Joseph had to go away and then he really came back and that sort of journey. So what do you think changed between you being pushed out to you being welcomed back, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a it's a well-thought re-entrance actually um so well planned well thought out so there's a there's another you know book or and sort of theme called the hero's journey yeah yeah, yeah. so you you see it with joseph campbell and all that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. so basically the, the whole thing is that you know you're in a village someone to, you know there's a, there's rumor that there's a, a dragon so then you know you end up 
going, you travel to distant lands, you're away for years, you, sl you slay a dragon, and then eventually you come back into the village and, you know, as the hero. Um, but people think, well, are there really dragons? <laughs> you know, did you really do that? <laughs> and so on. So, and also coming back to tell people about the, the heroic things you've done doesn't go down well. No, not particularly. <laughs> so it was a well-thought re-entry to... Uh, coming back, building relationships with people, getting to know folks locally in the tech scene. So nurturing that over uh, a few years before even knowing that I was moving back. So I, I started to build that up. And then uh, and then coming home, um, being very careful about what I say and mm. about what I've done. Um, yeah. Because it's if you can't relate, it doesn't make sense. And yeah. what's the benefit of sharing with someone uh, for my own benefit? Yeah. You know, so. so I kind of had a the impression that it would be hard to get you to talk about some of your successes on the podcast okay so what i'd like to talk about for now instead anyway is what do you think are some of the dragons that you slayed slain slayed i'm not actually sure on that one have slain have slain <laughs> <laughs> uh during that time period yeah there's a few the stuff out there you know moving into really having the guts to start a company and take risk that's one of them in the sense of that the there's a much more conservative nature in Northern Ireland. Um, I have was a, I'm a little bit more risk toward, and so going so going somewhere distant to be able to step into a new world and get in flow with that. And you know as, as that what I've realised is that uh, fa you know failure is only feedback. Mm. You know is that so, so it's like you do something if you do something and you expect to win and in, in the startup world especially right away. Uh, you're, I mean, some people do, but it's not really realistic. They're called unicorns for a reason, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> it, takes, it takes some time to learn the ropes. Uh, there's not a lot of books out there. And certainly whenever I was getting going at the beginning, there weren't any accelerators. There's not, there wasn't like what you've got here at the baths with Propel and, Ignite. And when and you stuff. say when you were getting started... Just to help me out, are we talking about Trove or are we talking about something else? No, way way before this has been closer to twenty years ago, where um, a friend and I started a, a small business called Fresh Initiatives, which was actually to help um, other people start you know, develop their own businesses oh, nice. and ideas. Yeah, because both of us had come from a business background earlier in our, in our lives, and then that was the big, this was sort of the pre dot bomb, <laughs> you know, or the, the dot com bust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This was the ninety eight, ninety nine. And so in that, there was a lot, there was a lot of risk taken, um, a lot of passion in it. And, and in some ways it was, um, I'd say one of the things that I've learned in that sense about is learn about who I am as a person. I've learned that you can be smart, uh, but sometimes that doesn't, it's not going to give you the win. It's just as much to do with timing and the people that you're surrounded by. Uh, so I think... Having a having a couple of losses as well early days or was important for me. Um, lost everything I had in uh, in September eighteenth, two thousand. Um, two days before uh, my son was born <laughs> in a new country, limited visa. Canada or where were we? In Canada, yeah. yeah. And I was and I was tied up to the other commitments to to half a million in debt of which I had to pay. So it was a new company that started and there's a longer, more painful story uh, uh, version of this, but enough to sort of recognize that uh, we're much more resourceful than we imagine. Yeah. So that's another one in the sense of there's a deep-seated belief to know that we can do a lot more than what we all think is possible because I was able to, in a new country with really no contacts, you know, be able to, you know, keep my family together, you know, have the have the bills paid and uh, rebuild personal wealth and pay debts yeah. all at the same time. So, um, so yeah, it's amazing what's it's amazing what's possible yeah. um, if when, when you're when you're forced into that resourceful state. So it's um, I've been in, you know, I've had big wins and I've had some losses and. And in the midst of it, so it was just that learning to be content on both both you know both sides of that fence. Um, so I think that the contentment is really one of the, one of the things that would not like. I'm normally, I, I hope most folks that meet me would normally see me as calm and content. And I think that piece where 
not not letting sort of the worries of the day sort of get me stressed out. Mm. Um, there are t- there are days where the, yes, I I peak because of, but I've got extremely high thresholds of pain now. Yeah, um, which is probably played out in some of that ultra running, ultra biking stuff too. <laughs> but um, I think it all plays in together. Um, but some of those things would be uh, learn- learning to recognize that you know failures only feedback and it makes us you know stronger individuals, and then also that there's always somebody who's done it better, bigger, smarter than you. Yeah, sure. So you're never you know that so. There may be the odd person in the world can say that they're they're they've done it, but for someone that's very competitive like me and has high ambitions, you know, it's whenever you know, you know, I did fourteen ultra marathons in one year, and after running a hundred miles across the the mountains, you you pick up the book and you realize you read about a guy who does it for a thousand. You know, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you, there's moments you push yourself, and then you realize. There's always somebody who can do it better. Yeah. There's only one best in the world, isn't there? By definition. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, so well for for many years on my, comp- I had a little sticker on the top of my computer screen that just said, you know, character equals success, and that was really for me that no matter where I am or what's happening to me, how I behave and what I do. So it's that sort of integrous nature is something that I think would be the one of the most important things for me. Um, sort of to think that I've brought back is that no matter in what situation I've done it, I've remained a person of integrity yeah. and and character, so that it's not. I didn't do any. I didn't take any shortcuts. Something that I personally struggle with, and something that I'd love to hear your insight on, is that whole issue of or that whole area. Sorry, of contentment, right? So I get contentment. I know how important it is. Contentment is something that I strive for constantly in my life. But I am not sure how to balance contentment with ambition, how to find contentment in the good and the bad seasons of my life while still always pushing for more. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a friend of mine, um, Jim McNeese, sort of highlighted this, and I don't know if I'm quoting him or if it's borrowed from someone, but in one of his um, coaching sessions, it really drew out some stuff for me that basically a lot of people seek out balance in life mm. uh, but if you really think about balance in the nature of life it's actually flatline so it's actually that's when you're dead <laughs> so the the idea of seeing it like a seesaw you know when you're trying to get the thing perfectly balanced and in an order then there's no fun anymore yeah 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 so there's a part of this is that it's actually how can you hold them in basically intention uh, uh, in a paradox where you can say okay well actually I can have ambition and I can still be content yeah you know um, so it's really basically being able to nurture both and recognizing that there are seasons where ambition and drive is just right on and there's moment and then there's other seasons where it's rest but being able to just be you in the midst of those seasons and mm. knowing who you are is really probably the most the, the key thing. So you said kind of just like all hero journeys that whenever you went away, you a big part of that and a big part of the dragon that you slayed was actually figuring out who you are. Yep. So, I mean, biggest question probably ever asked in the podcast, but who are you? Yeah, I'm basically, so for me as a person, who I am is that, well, I'm num- number number one, I'm like, you know, you know, I'm I'm Mark. You know, I've got you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy from Northern Ireland who has big ambitions, but also has a heart to bring transformation in our world. You know, I'm a natural problem solver. I love to. I look at the world and I get annoyed about certain things, and then I put my hand to them to make the world better. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband. You know, I'm a father. You know, I'm a, I'm a son, and I'm a brother. So those are those are probably the core of who I am. Um, who I am in from a missional perspective is really that um, I'm good at strategies of displacement. So I look at the world and see these things that are broken. And part of the role that I play is tearing them down. <laughs> um, but not in, a, not in a way that's, uh, that's um, wrong or just, just for the sake of. Yeah. So it's almost like I will, oh, and then and at the same time I build up that thing to display. So, so could you maybe give us an example of that? Yep. So at the moment I look at the, the world of insurance is broken. Um, and, you know, 
Scott, I've started this company called Trove to really bring transformation. So in one ways, I'm getting in and I'm being very disruptive. So there's part of the tearing down mm. of the old institution yeah. while the building up of the new. Yeah. So and when I'm in a place of uh, where I'm tearing down and building up at the same time, it you know I'm I flourish. Yeah. And typically does my the work that I'm with. And kind of from the horse's mouth, what is Trove for those who don't know? Uh, Trove is and is, is predominantly it's an insure tech company. So for those who don't know, there's a, there's a hashtag called insure tech, which really <laughs> is it's a sector of of technology. You know, we um, that's completely focused on reformation or disruption of the insurance world. And um, then what we do is we help you know people you know insure anything, anytime, anywhere intelligently. And um, so that uh, and and part of the framework or the platform of what we built is, is really to, to handle episodic insurance. So we basically took what was the insurance world, we atomized it, and are now rebuilding it. And, you know, by that, that means that we can track risk by a millisecond, you know, we can, which enables some of the interesting work that we're doing for like companies like Waymo. So we work with Google's autonomous vehicles, so we bring the insurance capacity behind us, but we're the middle layer tech. And so when and so when a, an autonomous vehicle picks you up, we turn insurance on for that personal mm. liability. When that person gets out, we turn that off. Interesting. And, and so and then that's basically we so we we can track, bill, manage um, through all of those things through our through our platform. So um, like a really basic version would be my bicycle is insured when I'm riding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And we're doing these different smart solutions. Like we're close to launching a, a new car insurance uh, product in in Australia, and it you know, has all these different flexible modes on it. So, like when you go on holidays, you can put it on holiday mode. Nice. You know, so you can you know it turns it into a more usage based and you know tracks different changes of risk. So it turns everything into digital dynamic framework. Rather than today, when you're buying these things of insurance, you're buying annual policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to use telephones. Yeah, all these sort of things. So we're digitizing that whole world and making it more flexible, and for the demands of new, uh, you know, of the new new world, really. Yeah, so yeah. you know, when you travel around, you look at all of these, like the the emergence of electric scooters. You know, <laughs> yeah, free floating bikes, free yeah. floating, you know, mopeds and everything. So all of that is a whole new world that folks are thinking. Well, how do you, how do you handle that? Sure. How do you keep people protected? Yeah, you know. So the, you know, if for for those who are interested without getting too boring, you know, insurance is a very important part of our society. It's a it's a pillar that enables society and people to take risk. Mm. If you take it out. And there's a, a creates a more conservative nature, so that's where. But you've got to then look at those risks that people are taking, and yeah. then be able to put that, you know, put yeah, that, mitigate them a wee bit, <laughs> mitig, mitig, mitigate and and make sure it's sustainable. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. That's where um, we are a small company, uh, Silicon Valley headquartered. I've got a presence here in Belfast. Um, Eighty six of us on staff, I believe it is today. The majority of those people are engineers and product. Uh, there's a few of us here out there bringing the revenue and the deals and partnerships. Um, we have raised over 100 million in capital to back their, what we're doing to really boost our growth internationally. We work in Australia, we work in the UK, we're in uh, the United States, we're just launching in Japan. Nice. And uh, we've got a few other countries um, uh, that we'll be pushing out into next year. Cool. So insurance is one thing that you have torn down and rebuilt. What else? Um, so in the insurance side of things, I wouldn't say we've torn it down and rebuilt <laughs> it. I think that will take many, many, many years. But it's certainly, you know, part, we're certainly making a dent. We're making, we're yeah. certainly influencing at this stage. There's, yeah. we're, we're being paid attention to, you know, on, on that side of things. I've also, um, you know, worked in other areas and other industries. So... And uh, part of it we have done as well was working in the sort of collaborative software. So part of that was also to go in and to look at how people communicate today and to work through what you can do to really change that and enhance it. Um, as well as that with um, working with transformation of teams and people. So it's basically breaking down the hierarchical structures. Um, so I love doing this, you know, 
part of this was like just having different strategies of going in. Like one company I was working with, they were it had got so old and and stayed, and they had that they thought they would what they would do is introduce this fantastic thing called Casual Fridays. Okay, and uh, <laughs> this was a long time ago, and it was um, you know one of those ones where it was very you know part of it in a controlled culture thinking look I'm I'm an adult I know how to dress myself so as I was brought in there what I did is I set, set up a blog called Casual Fridays okay and mocked the entire thing <laughs> and um, and I turned I, I basically started wearing jeans I was I jeans and t-shirt during the week and a full suit on Friday <laughs> and, and you know until it sort of like got to the point where people teased and and it messed it sort of messed up the the structure. I started to loosen up the framework about how people thought and considered yeah. what, what the work was for and about, and then for to leadership to help them recognize that people know how to dress themselves. Yeah, of course. and if they don't or are inappropriate or don't know how to do it, then maybe they're not the right employees. <laughs> so, lots of fun stuff like that. Yeah, it's good. And where do you think that comes from in you? Like, I mean, just whenever you're saying all this, I have a very primitive picture in my head of someone who loves to, I'm thinking of my best man, Steve, he loves to, like, whenever he was younger, while I was playing video games, he would be buying, like, field cars for, like, 50 quid and taking them apart and putting them back together just so he could learn how to do that, if that makes sense. Like, is there anything from your younger years or your formative years that you can trace back to this kind of taking stuff apart, rebuilding them, things like that? It's more to do, I don't, I don't like things that, are unjust. I don't like processes that don't make sense. You know, when you look at something going, why on earth? Were you a good student in school? No, I was an awful student yeah, in school. Yeah, I, I guessed you would be. <laughs> yeah, no, I was um, sort of, uh, you know, yeah, I didn't really make it the whole way through. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, I went the end stuff, which I'm very proud of. Okay. Um, I'm, it's a normal school and actually it's delivered me some of the best friends I've had in life really so that's uh there's the the our, our year was pr probably was a lot a lot a lot of fun but while you know while there I probably tortured uh the the uh the teachers quite a lot by just by being a prankster yeah. um or not playing by the rules um so what's your most uh the prank that you always tell the story of uh, I've got I've got a few <laughs> not for the podcast I probably couldn't confess some of them um, probably one of the best ones though was uh, our principal was called Tom Garrett at the time right he didn't like me um, and he had a and we were at that particular time it was we were we were, we were a math class and I think it was math if I remember went to like down to like it was third form, I think this was at the time, it was 3A to 3E, and we were 3E. Like oh, the, yeah. yeah. We were the, the <laughs> bottom of the barrel. Um, and so it came to prize-giving day, and we were asked to go set up the chairs because they knew we were not going to work or do anything yep. substantive. So we go into the assembly hall, set up all the chairs, and while doing it, you know, a couple of us decided that we'll do stage dives into the chairs <laughs> and have a bit of fun. And on and standing on stage, I looked over and I saw the... Um, that they had the uh, all the the prizes, so it was the so Tom Garrett had gone up and basically all the all the trophies were out. His cue cards were already set; uh -huh. everything was there. Yeah, and I couldn't resist it, <laughs> so I took I kept the first two cue cards the same. <laughs> I stole one, jumbled the rest, <laughs> and then I shuffled and I shuffled the trophies. Oh no! And it was so. And he stood up that evening. Parents are there. Oh, all the boys no. are there. And he starts to give his speech and he got, you know, he got into it and all of a sudden he started waffling and it was all <laughs> broken and jumbled and he stumbled all over himself. And then he he stopped and he said, and he said sorry, folks, I'm not sure what's happening. And, and he just jumped pretty much straight to the prizes. Oh, man. And I don't think he realized what, he'd, what had happened until he was handing the Beth's math student a giant trophy with a guy holding a rugby ball. <laughs> And he stopped in the middle and he said, ladies and gentlemen, boys, someone has been tampering with my presentation. And when I find out oh. which boy, they will have severe, you know, oh. rep rep repercussions. <laughs> and did he find out? Well, all my friends rat him out right what? then and there. I thought you said you had good friends against. Uh, yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's what good friends do. That's it. So it was, um, so yeah, that was one of the better pranks. So what happened to you? 
Do you remember? Um, well, he did a few things like that consistently, and then they brought my mum and dad in, and he told me that I had the worst record in the history of the school, which I thought was actually a pretty, pretty big pretty, achievement, pretty isn't pretty it? Present, you know, <laughs> Put that on your age. CV. Exactly. You know, <laughs> your LinkedIn profile. Exactly. For a school, <laughs> a school of that age, I think, and that's, <laughs> that's impressive. Um, and so, yeah, they, yeah, I was told at that stage that basically I could uh, leave, and but I'd They'd allow me to come back to do my O-levels, just to, to write them. But no matter what I got, I wasn't welcome uh, wow. to come to sixth form. So I didn't do sixth form. There you go. So what happened? You did your GCSEs and then you did what? I My goal on GCSEs was to get five GCSEs. So yeah. I could at least get half of, you know, that, that was the base minimum. So yeah. I went in and got that. Good man. Um, and then went on to work for my uh, dad's company, actually. What were you doing there? My dad had a hunting tackle. Oh, wow. That's not where I thought we were going at all. No. So that was one of the great things folks asked me when, you know, in the States, you know, what was it like growing up? I said, well, yeah, my dad owned a gun shop in Belfast. <laughs> you know. It's a, it was a winning opener. The, um, but yeah, he had a, a, he had a, basically like pet foods in the aquarium. Um, like lot of, so my dad was an entrepreneur and, you know, at one point he had a garden store and lots of stuff <laughs> like, um, and sort of, but then he had, um, sort of like pet food and animal food uh, manufacture. And then he had trucks to dis- for distribution at one point throughout all the UK. Um, so it was a, so I learned business. I actually worked there every day after school from when I was 11. And so by the time I was, you know, 16, I was, you know, uh, running the weekends and stuff. So I'd give my dad a day off. And, Amazing. Um, yeah, so he grew me through the ranks and all of that. And then when I was 17, he bought me a, uh, a second-hand car, a suit, and a briefcase, and sent me to West Belfast to sell. Amazing. Yeah, so little Protestant boy from Ballygan <laughs> sitting in the, West, the middle of West Belfast, and <laughs> actually ended up making a lot of friends. It was great. Um, yeah, you did. So, yeah, so then so it just grew through through the, the, the family business um, right until I was 22. And Were you always a people person? I was very shy, actually. Okay. Were you shy when you got the car? Uh, yep. And so what was selling in West Belfast like for you at that age? Um, I can't remember this lady's name. I wish I could for the life of me. Um, uh, but I remember going in and and she, her words to me were, she said, look, son, you're not going to sell much unless you talk. <laughs> and so I asked her, I just said, I've never done this before. I said, can you t- can you, can you you help me know how to sell to you? <laughs> and so then that, she, she basically took me under her wing and, Showed me how she was showed me how to sell, and then other folks and basically used the same strategy with everyone. So I used then the potential customers or customers to, uh-huh. to basically teach me how to sell to them, and then it sort of became reasonably high performing and Great. on the sales side of things. So then I became the the manager, sales manager over a team. And what was like the most exciting or the weirdest deal that you closed? Because what were you set? What sort of stuff would you been selling? Basically, the, the equivalent of canned dog food or meals and stuff that was being listed in supermarkets. Interesting, because this sort of explains, or maybe it doesn't explain, but I have in my notes here. The to- there's some, a talking point about exotic pets, specifically a snake. So is this connected to your dad's shop? Yeah. The, okay. Yeah, with rep- <laughs> reptile shop and, and aquarium. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. There's a, a few fun facts and stories in there. So basically, I learned. Where'd you find your voice? Was it through that experience that you think you can look back and say, "This is where I found my ability to connect with people and communicate and sell"? Yeah, it gave it gave me confidence. Um, so yeah, I, I I overcame a lot of my shyness on that. Um, although, depending on the situation, I still. Be, I mean, the the number I this could be the same for absolutely every person, you know. But I mean, I I hate walking into a room full of people I don't know. Um, I, I sometimes even hate walking into the room full of people. <laughs> Depends who's <who's> in it. <laughs> it's um, yeah, I can be a bit of a recluse, and I, a lot of people you know are going, "Oh, Mark, you're making that up," you know, because it can be a party animal. Um, yeah. When you get me going, but it, I had to develop that. Yeah. So it was more no, it was more shy and a prankster behind the scenes. Um, but I it did. A lot, I've done a lot of sort of coaching therapy because there's a lot of areas where I I was a weak communicator when it came to interpersonal, but when it came to the development of the, of of confidence, a lot of it came out. And then, um, and then I would say it probably when I went to 
Muskoka Woods, which is a sports resort in Canada. And my summers went at university, so there, I know there was a big skip in there because there was a bunch of years of work, but I actually did go to university <laughs> later, later in life. What did you study, just briefly? I did theology and divinity. There you go. And um, so it's not the normal route to tech. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but it was working through my own personal life crisis. And um, but I ended up going to Canada and work, working with a lot of young people there. Um, and you end up on, on front of a mic a lot. You learn how to sort of manage mm. that. So spent sort of they had a, did a lot of public speaking, um, and sort of learn, learn and develop that. So I've been public speaking, you know, since my sort of early twenties, yeah. and so I love that. So put me in front of a crowd, and I'm I'm happy. So so it's, so I do a lot of keynotes around the world at the yeah. moment. Um, so it's I always stress ahead of them, but uh, but I think with the I've done. I've got plenty of experience. You've got whatever it was, the, the 100,000 hours or whatever they cost. Yeah, 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 I've, yeah. Got, I've got that. I've a lot of frequency. I've had a lot of experience. I've had a lot of coaching and support and those things. So, And uh, and the areas of, you know, that that any other remaining areas have probably been worked out with a therapist. Yeah, right? that's right. it. I find it interesting because, so I relate to you in a lot of ways on um, for lack of a better term, the introvert front in terms of I enjoy my own company, I refuel when I'm by myself, I too am intentionally carving out opportunities to walk and spend lo- long periods of time by myself, yet thrive on stage, love public speaking, uh, love connecting with people, and it's something that I have developed because I was painfully shy as a child as well. So, But I think people are sometimes confused by that those holding those two things in tension with each other of, well, how can you be somewhat shy or, or like you said, a recluse, but also be the life and soul of the party when you want to? How, yeah. do, you, how do you usually respond to people when they say that to you? It's just, uh, I probably tell stories. Um, but I've met, it is a, but it is a pattern that I see. Some of the best communicators in the world that I've got to meet and you get them off the stage and they, they can hardly start two words <laughs> It's almost similar to some of the best authors in yeah. the world, then you get them on stage and they're crap. <laughs> you know, so it's it's just we're 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 good at certain stuff, and yeah. Um, it's yeah. I think it, and public speaking is you know it's invigorating, but it's also exhausting big time. Yeah. So it's yeah, but yeah, folks are are constantly surprised with me if, if if someone says or I mention that I would be more more of an introvert they just laugh at me yeah but it's a well-developed skill to be to, to handle the, ex, the extroversion that's necessary for my life and role and, and uh at, at work and how do you sort of protect the asset then with all that kind of high energy output how do you take care of yourself and make sure you have enough energy left in the tank and all that sort of stuff long walks is that it long walks is one of them um and i I travel a lot, so I spend a lot of time in the road. So I spend I spend a lot of time alone and you know evenings in a hotel room. So yeah, get to read, watch, recuperate, you know, and that side of things. So I do. I love I love that moment when I get back. I'm on alone, and you know, not in the way that I'm like I miss because I miss my family in that yeah. way. But yeah, I I love those moments where I can just be myself and be alone um, and just replenish. Yeah. No. Fascinating. So yeah, so I try and build. I try and build that in, and I'll do like if I'm traveling, I'll build a day. If I've got, if I have to travel over the weekend, I'll go somewhere interesting and you know and enjoy it. Get out into the out into nature and stuff yeah. as well. Cool. So big part of the hero's journey is there's this moment usually where you know the guy pulls the sword out of the stone, or the mentor hands him the magic wand or he finds the tool or the weapon that he needs. What are some of the kind of tools that you've picked up along the way that have helped you kind of in this journey and in this battle fighting these dragons? What are some of the key things that you wish you could have maybe accessed sooner or that you are very keen to give out to other people now? So I studied um, neuro-linguistic programming. NLP. NLP. Yeah, so I did that from... You know, from practitioner right through to uh, through to sort of oh wow to the master's level. You went for it then, yeah. Did the whole thing. I spent the summer in uh, uh, with Robert Diltz and the guys out in um, in California. And for the people who aren't familiar with NLP, really briefly, just touch on it. Basically, what it does, it looks at sort of the the 
you look at some people who are quite brilliant, like uh, some of the people back in the day would have been like Virginia Satir, who was the development of systems family therapy, and they looked at her and they thought she was a bit of a magician. So they, so what these guys did, um, Grinder and Bandler, Diltz, and they, they were at University of Santa Cruz and they would bring these people in or they would watch them and they would basically deconstruct the the structure of how they approached things. So they atomized it and then they looked at how they could rebuild those skills and for other people to learn. So that, so it's basically they'd call it the structure of magic. So, um, so it really helps, you know, then for de the development of how to build these things in life. So for instance, when I, I struggled early days to be able to communicate with people in authority, I would bottle up. Uh, but what the, these therapies and coaching methodologies would do, but it helped to deconstruct what that is in my life, mm. to basically, you know, and then basically rebuild new strategies in. And then, and so basically allows you to borrow from more resource that's available that, that you already have, but don't deploy. Yeah. Um, so it, it helps you to restructure who you are a little bit. So yeah. the, the areas that where you, where, that you struggle with, you can strengthen. Um, and so it's basically, it, in some ways, it really it can un unlock more of the true you because you know, we've got these impediments that really hold us hold us back. So that was one for me, especially if, if you think about what I do today is that half of my job or most of my job is negotiating <laughs> with people in authority yeah true <laughs> I, I couldn't i couldn't do that today and i would be held back um if i hadn't have worked through those those pieces so i would say that the the tool set that was given to me through nlp and bioenergetics probably you know real really i spent years um working with them and taking those courses um and going through the therapies themselves that really helped helped to unlock me as a to be the sort of the core of who I am. Yeah. And again, big part of the hero's journey is whenever they meet kind of the mentor figure, you know, Harry meets Dumbledore or Frodo meets Gandalf or, you know, you could go on and on. Are there any kind of key mentors in your life that have come in at significant times and really kind of helped you on that trajectory? Yeah, I would say probably on that trajectory specifically, that would have, that would have been Jim McNeish. Uh, so he's a, uh, uh, he, you know, consultant lives lives out of Scotland actually, um, and has done some work with some of sort of some of the top people in the world, whether it's you know musicians or you know board members or politicians. Yeah. So, um, so in that definitely was a big steer for me, um, and then as a, you know, I'll attribute a lot as well to uh, uh, John McCauley, who's the the CEO, present CEO at Muskoka Woods in Canada. Had a big influence in my life, and I would say my business partner Scott Walchek, um, that he, uh, you know, he, he he's basically shaped me up as a as an entrepreneur. He's got years of experience ahead of me, and so those I would say that those those meeting those three people in my life have helped really shape who I am. Amazing, and something you mentioned at the very start of the interview, you mentioned this whole idea that one of your missional things is to help people flourish. And you've said it re repeatedly throughout the interview in different ways. You know, you just kind of said helping people find out more of the true them or the true you. So whenever you meet people, I'm going to actually start here. How do you decide who to invest in? Because there are so, so many people that could make use of your support and your help. So how do you, with your finite resources, decide who to actually go after? It's a difficult one because certainly my heart are, is bigger than my hands <laughs> in that way. Uh, so there's certainly people that I would love to be supporting more, which I, I, I just can't. Sure. It depends on the season. So I am very selective about who I spend time with. Um, um, it's, it's a difficult one, but normally I look for uh, potential. So I look for somebody who's got substantial potential and have have a big you know big stage um and help work with them to, to help unlock some of those pieces or coach and support but so then how do you go about unlocking some of that stuff once you've identified the individual you've seen if your hands have the capacity to do it then what's next yeah well it's just be a little bit of the mentoring and most most of these people are today would be folks that have a startup that either i'm sit on the board with or i'm an investor in and that would be something where I'll, 
I'll look at, I'm looking at their business and I'm looking at them mm. and so that their business can make uh, a meaningful difference in the world as well as them yeah. as an individual. So it's there are some people who are just uh, that I do take a keen interest in that are just in, just good human beings. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So there are literally, you know, there's about 20 questions we could go through here and go on for hours and hours. Uh, I just want to get a very short version of this story because, again, something we could unpack. Uh, you have been described as someone who's been consistently seven years ahead of your time. Okay. So you didn't say that. Someone else said that about you whenever I was kind of scoping this interview out. And one little tiny thing I'd love to kind of hear the story behind is just your involvement with Uber because I think that's really interesting if you're willing to share. Yep. Yeah, one of the things for me, the seven, it's, uh, seven years ahead of my time would be right. Um, and I'm very aware of it now. I wasn't obviously at the beginning of, and there's good, there's there's good, bad, and ugly in that. Um, the good is is that you have the foresight, so I do see things into the future. Yes, I mean that would be, I I, I track trends. I can I can sniff them out, and I normally know where to put the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I sort of love the venture world quite yeah, a lot. Yeah. So so that part is is feels natural to me. And not just because of what I read, but because of what I, you know, I, I notice around the world. Um, the uh, so that that part is, you know, there's a good part of it. The bad part of it is of that if you're not wise, you can start a company or invest in a company because you see the future. But if you're getting involved in the company seven years before there's a market for it, <laughs> you'll likely lose your shirt. <laughs> So, which is, you know, which is what I've done. I've done that investment. I've done that personally. Yeah. So those, I've got that. And then, yeah, the ugly part of the mess in that is, is that you start, you can start something with an end in mind. And then you realize by the time it gets to those seven years, things do evolve. Yeah. And so you you got, you end up having to evolve, pivot and change, which is, you know, many startups do. Yeah. So time, timing of getting closer to the magic is always a lot better. Yeah. Um, on that one cool and then uh, i don't know if this is an example of that but certainly the, the uber story is something that i think i'd love to hear because i've never actually heard it it's just the uh so with that one i got involved there's um uh you got david cohen brad feld and some others they're, they're very well known names in the startup world and this speci- specifically in the investment you got david cohen he started tech stars um out of boulder colorado um i'd got to know them um, by hanging out in Boulder uh, for a bunch through another company I was doing and we all went to South by Southwest Yep, and we're hanging out and basically they, you know, David said Mark, I'm putting a fund together, it's called Bullet Time Ventures um, you know, want to gather a few of the likely suspects and people who are sort of like people who know tech and know this world mm. and, and startups to be involved in it, so not, not just money Um and so I, uh, I agreed then and there to, to invest in that. And then one of the first companies that, uh, that we invested in as a small fund was into Uber. Um, so we invested a, uh, an amount of money in when I think the valuation was four or five million. It's amazing. So, but yeah, that would be quite a while ago, yeah. Seven, yeah. Probably is. Could be longer than seven years. Now. Yeah, maybe. maybe yeah. You, you stretched your usual, your usual yearage. Yeah, so it's uh, but yeah, timing's every timing's everything in the startup world. Yeah, cool. So a couple of stock questions we always like to end with. Um, first one is I think you've talked a lot about challenges you faced. I usually ask people what's the most challenging moment of your life. I think we've covered a lot of that. I would be more interested purely to kind of put you on the mic now. And this is one of my favorite questions to ask: is what is where what was the most successful moment of your life? Like the moment where you felt the most successful? Kind of looking back. I know that's a huge one. Mm. Probably win- winning an ultramarathon race. Yeah. 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 It's, I probably don't look. I don't probably look. Don't look back on business and anything. Yeah. I think of that. Um, when I walked down the aisle with my wife. Yeah. When I helped my son and my daughter when they were born. Yeah. Um. When I listen to my daughter sing, when I hear my son speak or give his, like, as the head boy, he just kills it. So 
Yeah, I'd say that. I mean, those are the moments for me. I just get, you know, I look back and go, wow, that's, that is really, that's been mass success. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, another wee question I always like to ask before we wrap up is, um, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee, dead or alive, who would you take and why? Anybody from Northern Ireland, <laughs> dead or alive. I know, it's the dead or alive the real killer, isn't it? That's a tough one. Because I suppose the, the alive ones have taken most of them out. Oh, see, this is it, you know. Um, so I think the... So who's who's not around? Um, or is there, if there's anyone you haven't, you've yet to take to the Duke of York, you know. We're all about making dreams happen. We're all about connecting people up for coffees. <laughs> yeah, no, I think in Northern Ireland, I mean... I don't. There, there probably are interesting people that I have not yet met, you know. And but there's, there's nobody on my. I've got nobody on a list. So then we'll stick with the dead ones, <laughs> people who you're consciously aware of. Yeah, I would love to go back to the, you know, back to the Titanic times and to really understand the dynamics of what was going on behind the building of the Titanic, and 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 the influence of J.P. Morgan and the financial strain of that of that financial investment. And the timings of it. And J.P. Morgan is in... As in, Jay, as as in, in Chase financier. Bank? I pre-Chase, yeah. So he that, was involved in the Titanic? Yeah. I had no was, idea. Yeah, I think it was... The, I think it was I'm pretty sure it was... Did J they bankroll it? Yep, that's Did my they? understanding, yeah. And, I had no idea. And I think that there was there were timelines and maybe difficult timelines put in it to sort of force things off the I slip. Had, I had no idea. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was... I'm pretty sure I'm not making it up. Well, I don't think I could, you know... Yeah, um, how could you make it up? I'm, <laughs> Maybe another big bank, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was American money. Wow! And and so the guy, so I'd like to meet sort of like you know obviously Mr. Andrews and that whole gang back then. Yeah. What did they go through and the pressures that they must have felt to to basically launch the world's largest ship um, that was being bankrolled for all this big money in America? And the t and um, my understandings of that, the reason why I'm interested is because I know what it. I don't want to feel like with other people's money yeah, and what you've got to deliver. But to have something at Titanic scale, that would intrigue me. Wow. That's interesting. I, I definitely want to actually look into that now. Uh, last question, Mark. Uh, it's the one we always end with, and it's a bit of a cheesy cliche one, but I love to end here. If you could take yourself, if you hop back in a time machine and take, let's say, whenever you finish your GCSEs, right? So what is that? 16-year-old Mark-ish, somewhere around there. If you could take him... Uh, out for a wee drive in that second-hand car, what advice would you give him if he just had a few minutes of his time? Yeah, so it's, a, it's an exercise like the first day of the ancient you. You're sort of like staring at myself and the advice that I would, would give would, would give him is that, you know, it's just like, just just be you. That would be it. You know, it's like you don't have to, you don't have to try, you don't have to push beyond, you know, to be something else. Just Just be yourself and you're going to do well. Amazing. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate Thanks, you. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, there it is. There's another one in the bag, guys. Mark, thank you once again for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your time with us and, of course, all the insight too. If it's your first time listening, thank you very much for listening. Hey, <laughs> you've made it to the very end. Really appreciate you. Really simply, Best of Belfast is here just to celebrate and document some of the incredible people who call Northern Ireland home. If you have signed up to the Best of Belfast email newsletter, you'll already have a photo of Mark along with links to his contact information and social media profiles. If you would like to see that and you're not on the email list, you can head to bestofbelfast.org where you can find all that good stuff and sign up for future stuff. Other than that, my email box is open for you guys. It's matthew at bestofbelfast.org and I'd love to hear any feedback, any suggestions. Do you know someone who would be amazing to have on the show? Let me know. And I'd love to hear from you guys for any suggestions, tips, advice, blah, 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 blah. All right, guys, have a fantastic rest of your week, whatever you get up to. And until next time, all the very best. Cheers. Hi, guys, I'm Rob, and I'm from Queensland, and I'm a proud member of the Best of Belfast Producers Club. I listen to the podcast for a number of reasons. I love Belfast, Northern Ireland, and the country and the people in it. I have a connection with Northern Ireland as our family came to Australia in the 1800s from the beautiful county of Fermanagh. I love what's going on in Belfast, the entrepreneurs, the innovation, the technology and the spirit. My favourite podcast is definitely the Tim Brundle episode, although I do have many other favourites. I support the podcast financially because I believe that quality work deserves fair financial support. 
It's important that we continue to hear about the amazing people of Northern Ireland and what they are achieving. So if you've been sitting on the fence about joining the Producers Club and you would really miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, as I would, I highly recommend considering joining today. You can do so over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to seeing you in the WhatsApp group soon.